0: For a few seconds, you don't know whether you're upside down or inside out, and suddenly you realise that it's rather funny. You've got a minute of this free fall. The action really is quite periphery. I'm driven by people's stories. I'm driven to find out more about the people behind the places.
1: I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world.
2: So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. So, Louise Hall. Listeners will have heard you on three interviews with Action Pack Travel, but we thought now is the time to find out a bit more about you.
1: You're a, a bit of an action girl yourself, aren't you? You've done all sorts of things with your life, and what was interesting us was what you did
0: last week. Yes, last week I jumped out of a plane for the first time ever. Terrifying.
1: <laughs> I, I presume you had a parachute on.
0: Yes, it was a tandem skydive. So I had a parachute and a backup, but most importantly, I had an instructor who knew what he was doing.
1: And you were tied to him?
0: Yes, I was tied to him. So it was the result of, of a dare from Friends. I hate heights so it was a belated 40th post lockdown and I got a group together and we went down to go skydive which is two hours west of London in a place called Salisbury which is incredibly beautiful above Salisbury Plains at Old Sarum Airport and we went there we had a safety briefing we were strapped in to a kind of metal harness a bit like a giant adult baby bouncer And we were taught what to do. And basically, the most important thing is just really lift your legs because the instructors do everything else. You have to really lift your legs up because coming into land, if you catch your feet, that can really cause great damage at the speed and weight of the two of you.
1: I can well imagine. So going back to the beginning here, most people, if they go parachuting, go skydiving, they do some static line parachute jumps, first of all. I mean, don't they? But you go
0: straight in at the deep end. I would say thrown in at the deep end. It was my first jump was from the highest you can jump, which is 15,000 feet with one minute of refall. But I managed to rope in a whole lot of other friends to also try it for the first time. There were six of us.
2: If you're on your own, could you go and do it and join other people or do you have to bring your own group along? Absolutely. If you're on your own, you can sign up and and do it. They take a
0: plane up and and within that plane, there's approximately about 10 people with a guide, with an instructor, not a guide. And some people choose to get a photographer, which means an extra person jumping alongside. But you can go on your own or you can go as a group. And if you're going as a group, we booked the first flight in the morning, 8.30 a.m. So we didn't get split up for weather reasons or, or whatever.
1: Well, when I did it, I haven't done skydive, goodness me, no. But when I first uh, jumped out of a plane, it was on a fixed line. And it was a bit like something out of World War II. You sort of, this old plane circling somewhere over Oxfordshire, And then there was a red light and a green light by the door. I'm pretty colorblind, so that didn't really help me an awful lot. But I guessed it was the lower of the two lights. Sergeant in charge of the whole thing threw open the door. And then came the moment and people in front of me jumped. And if you hesitated, he kicked you in the bum and out you went. I hesitated. He kicked me in the bum and out I went. And then I felt this sort of enormous terrifying sort of rush of air and wonder what happened next what
0: was your experience not that dissimilar I'd say <laughs> no they're a very slick operation I've done my research before and it's a place called go skydive built as the UK's number one in tandem skydiving center and one of the biggest in in Europe I think on a good day they they take about 170 people so it really is a, a slick operation that was reassuring but I was Absolutely terrified. As I say, I hate heights, but I like to challenge myself. Even thinking about it, I was giggling nervously for days beforehand, right up to the point of getting on the plane. And once you're strapped in, fortunately, there were several jumpers going from ten thousand feet. So they opened the door and out they went, shuffled out on their bums. they're not pushed out these days. you you kind of shuffled out, but your your instructor takes you out. and then I was at the front, so, I was sitting there watching them go and just going, ha ha, ha. Um, giggling very nervously. And then a few minutes later, it was my turn and my instructor shuffled to the front and left me hanging over the edge of the plane you hang for a couple of seconds until you're given the green light, the nod, uh, thumbs up, and then you go. And it's exactly that. It's, it's terrifying. It's exhilarating. It's total lack of control and not knowing what's going on and kind of g-force. You're going 120 miles an hour and it, it's terminal velocity is how they build it. You will be going terminal velocity. And uh, for a few seconds, you don't know whether you're upside down or inside out. And suddenly you realize that it's rather fun. You've got a minute of this freefall. Um, then the parachute kicks in and suddenly everything slows down and you can see where you are. and You can see the views out to the, to the south coast and the sea and the rolling bucolic hills. And it's, it's rather nice, suddenly, after a terrifying minute.
2: Did you have total trust in the instructor?
0: Yes, I did. My instructor had done 25,000 jumps which is about the most that any instructor will do. Even a Gordon blamar who set up the centre, who's this South African, large and life, incredibly safety conscious chap, who first skydived when he was working as a mechanical engineer in Namibia on the Skeleton Coast back in 1992 or something, after a bar dare. So I was really reassured to be with an instructor that had 25,000 hours.
1: Yeah, that's certainly a lot of hours.
0: Yes, and I trust him implicitly more than myself after five hours of training or whatever it would be. So all good.
1: And then what about coming into land? What happens then? You can talk to each other at this stage.
0: Yes, you can a little bit, actually. Um, We had masks on, so my mask kept blowing up over my eyes. I was trying to kind of pull it down. So, yes, the key thing to remember is lifting your legs up, really lifting them, them up because you don't want them to catch because with the weight of two people and a heavy instructor um, coming in at that speed, you can really cause damage. And that's pretty much the only damage. I mean, I think when I asked him if, if they'd had any anything go wrong, he said, well, yeah, a woman really hurt her ankle, but nothing more. So that's the key thing to remember.
1: And do you land on your
0: feet? I was worried about the landing, but it was so smooth. You come in and we just kind of glided over the grass. I mean, it's just so smooth. And then all quiet. And then watched the next jumpers. I landed first. So I watched all the next jumpers land, which was rather fun.
1: And will you do it again?
0: Yes. Yes, I would.
1: And is it quite expensive to do?
0: It does add up. I think it's a really good value experience. Bearing in mind, we can't travel at the moment. It's lockdown. You can do these things right on our own doorstep. And it does feel like you've been away it feels like you've you've been fully away you come back a completely different person it feels like at the end of the day the cost is between 2 and and 300 pounds and then you have some add-ons
2: so you could then go and do it anywhere else in the world next time couldn't you you don't have to do it in the same place
0: no exactly i mean i have no qualifications at all so i would jump as a beginner but absolutely and actually gordon said that since setting up the center he's made it his mission to jump all around the world and see how people are, are trained. And I think that's one of the joys because it's actually the experience of seeing where you are at from a different perspective, from a bird in the sky and seeing those great, vast, expansive horizons above the clouds and coming through the clouds. So yeah, I would say be brave and give it a go. My godmother was actually a huge inspiration for the skydiving because she did a jump in her late 60s, early 70s. She's a mother of a four, grandmother of about 16 now. And if she can do it, surely I can too. I'll give it a go.
2: Skydiving isn't your only dangerous activity. We actually met you for the first time on an aeroplane coming back from Geneva. I
1: have to say none of us jumped out of it.
2: Thank goodness. But you'd been skiing, I think. Yes, I think we'd all been skiing. And I have to say, it was a real joy to meet
0: you. And it was quite by chance. My flight, original flight, had been cancelled and kind of shuffled onto another flight. We sat next to you both. And I've heard so much about you. I just climbed and skied Mont Blanc for a, a ski feature.
1: That's pretty serious. I mean, not many people get to do that. It's uh, I know it's a walk up, not like more more of a walk than a climb up, isn't it?
0: It is normally. This was in April, so we need it was a ski up. We needed crampons, we needed we were on our skis with skins. We overnighted in the hut. We had to acclimatize by climbing the Grand Paradiso, which was another 4,000 plus meter mountain before. But the conditions were icy. We, you leave at 30, two o'clock in the morning with head torches. And it was pretty hairy at certain points. And Italians in front of us, you kind of settle into this, this chain of head torches, like snails going up a silvery trail up the mountain. And they slipped. One of the guys slipped, lost his skin. And almost took out the whole lot. I mean, I think there about 10 people caught up in this chain of ropes and it was right above a, a serious crevasse where they'd said, do not fall, do not do anything wrong. Which of course is when people lean into the mountain and slip because you have to do the opposite. You have to lean out to get a grip. And, and the kind of natural feeling is to want to hug the mountain and then people on skins fall. And actually we were so lucky, we managed to just step aside and get out of the trail. But we were caught up in it and then carried on up. And then at the end, you take off your skis and you need ice axes. And so it was really snowy. And then when we got there about 10 a.m., as the sun rose, looking over Europe really sensational. We actually skied the North Face route in the tracks of the original ascenters.
1: That's pretty serious, isn't it too? Quite a serious ascent. It
0: was pretty special. Coming back down off the mountain, you have to be very careful. And I did request to be roped up at one point because I've got a son and I don't want anything to happen. But I have to say that when we were in the hut, there was a couple of older guys who weren't leaving until late. And when we got back to Chamonix, there was a storm big electrical lightning storm. And that's the strange thing out there. Mont Blanc is called the the cloud above it is the donkey. Um, They say that the weather can change in a nanosecond or within a couple of hours. And it does. And we later heard reports that two people hadn't made it down that day. That's how serious it is.
2: You mentioned a minute ago, your son. And I don't know about you, but when I had children, everything changed in terms of adrenaline activities and dangerous things. And instead of just having myself to think about, suddenly I had to think about my children and what would happen if I injured myself badly or killed myself. I've heard other people, women say this as well, other women who have children, that everything suddenly changes in terms of what you're prepared to do. Has that affected you at all?
0: It has, it really has. It doesn't sound like it has from my various adventures, but after Mont Blanc, that was, that was it. But actually it was my husband after our son was born insisting I, I go skiing to Alaska uh, in 2008 that really pushed my envelope and it terrified me. But it also showed me that I could get fit and strong again. And as long as I was within my comfort zone, I could do these things. Mont Blanc was a little bit more out there, but really it's just not wanting to put myself in situations where there's any significant danger of death.
1: You say that, but you ski in Alaska, which is some of the most extreme skiing in the world. I should just explain that heli-skiing, for those who don't know about heli-skiing, is nothing to do with James Bond jumping out of helicopters. The helicopter actually lands and you get out of the helicopter and then you ski down with a guide. It's simply acting as a lift in places where there's no lift system. And I think when you heli-skiing in Alaska, you did something pretty strange there. What was that?
0: Yes. Well, I have to say that my kind of extreme skiing goes right back to my young 20s. So it, it predates kids we had a pretty extreme experience out there we're in the helicopter so you actually take off from the lodge in a in a beaver plane a post plane and to push out to ski uncharted terrain they take you by plane because it's all about fuel conservation, drop you, and then the helicopter came and, and picked us up and dropped us at the top of this range where we had been skiing the Koars. They look terrifying from the images, but actually when you're on them, it's just taking it, it turn by turn, not rushing it. And we were dropped on this Kouwa where the helicopter didn't even land. There wasn't enough space. So it hovers and it hovered terrifyingly for me close to this wall of, of rock because the one thing you don't want is the blades to catch. That's the key safety issue.
1: So the helicopter's not landed. How do you actually get out of the helicopter?
0: Good question. We climb down onto the skis of the helicopter because it has skis, not wheels. And and then a foot down. And we were told to just sit there and hunker in the really soft snow, buried in snow, like huskies. And then the guide takes out the skis from the, the ski locks, and the helicopter just uh, kind of slightly nose down and, and, and flies off and kicks up this, this spray. And then we're left sit- sitting there looking at each other again, giggling because the only way down is with our skis on heading down and that's the only way out of there and there was these two great walls of rock and the cool water. and the guide went first another friend Piers, went, went next and, and then i went and actually once you're in it it was it was surprisingly soft you just take it carefully a turn by turn and at the end of the line it opens up and that's the really fun bit this big mountain bowl of white and you, you, you ski down quite fast down back down to, to the helicopter. But next to it is this Kuwa, cool which is terrifying. And this extreme skier called Cody Townsend, incredibly talented man, was awarded the Red Bull Extreme Ski. I think it was called Line of the Year 2014 in a movie he did, Days of Youth. And it really is worth seeing. I mean, the clip is something else. He skied it straight down, like at terminal velocity. But it shows you the landscape out there. And Alaska is. It's stunning. It is tickly cold, which, which holds the snow. So it's it's much safer than other places to to ski or heli ski or extreme ski.
1: And then I think you went swimming the same day. Is that right? <laughs>
0: yes, correct. We came back and the night before in the lodge, there was 20 or 30 of us there. I'd sat next to, as you do, Laird Hamilton, this incredible incredible man who's married to an Olympian basketball player and they live in Hawaii. And he was the godfather of big wave surfing. And I think he might have even created kite surfing. Um, And he is really into the Wim Hof method of ice swimming. And so he challenged me and our group to come out and and see how long we could last in the lake outside the lodge. This is something that people do do, but usually jump in, jump out within a matter of seconds. But it was amazing. Could actually do up to Day on day, we advanced it to about 90 seconds. um, Mind over matter. It's basically a hole cut in the ice about 40 meters from the lodge. And you wear your flip flops and you run over and you go down a couple of steps and you hold onto a wooden bar. It can't be metal because you might not be extracted from it. And you lie in the lake up to your nose. And afterwards, you jump out and there's a hot tub and a sauna. And Literally, by the time you got there, your eyebrows are already frozen, your eyelashes are frozen, your hair has frozen. By the time you get to the jacuzzi, everything starts popping as it defrosts and you get this incredible rush. I mean, it is so good for you. Apparently, it burns deep brown fat. It really reinvigorates your circulation and you feel so alert for the next hour or two. You need to drink lots of water and then you crash and want to go to bed.
2: I'm assuming you wear a wetsuit when you do this. No. Bikini. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Speak to Led Hamilton. He's he's extreme.
2: (laughs) You've also walked to the North Pole. That's another of your many activities. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I like challenges, don't I?
1: You obviously like the cold.
2: Funny enough...
0: I really don't get on very well with the cold, which is another challenge in itself. I'd really rather be lying on a hot beach, but I, I love the beauty and also the history of these places. It dates back to when I was about seven and I was at school and we saw a, a, a slideshow on Shackleton and I was hypnotized by these images of white and this sense of, of adventure and going out and endurance and endurance being trapped in the ice. And I wondered where the women were. So for me, that was a huge motivation because we have the gift to go to these places. And if you've got a can-do attitude and work will send you, why not do it? You know. And when I discovered that the North Pole in 20 years, we wouldn't be able to ski there anymore. Our kids would booby swimming. I really felt we needed to show the climate change. And I was selected for a world first. It didn't go ahead, but we were really well trained. And we were then selected for the expedition that became the Walking with the Wounded Recce, the 2011 HRH Prince Harry Walking with the Wounded um, Recce expedition up to North Pole. You fly into Svalbard and you head to Barneo Base Camp and, and set off in there. When we landed in Barneo Base Camp, just before setting off, went into the mess tent to get a cup of tea while everyone was sorting out all their last pieces of kit. And who was sitting there but David Attenborough. And he came over to say, hello, I sat down on, on my table and he said, what's a young woman like you doing up here?
1: It's a very good chat out
0: there. <laughs> I don't wasn't that at all. I was fascinated to hear why, why he was. And of course they were filming Frozen Planet and he was very funny and, uh, and charming. And he said, well, the thing is they won't leave my side because my insurance is so high they're worried that I'm going to slip and break a bone or something. So i managed to find a few minutes on my own in the mess tent. <laughs> so it was a real joy. And then of course my team came in and they bombarded him and said, can we have photos? And so it was a really, really precious moment that.
1: Now, moving away from cold to warm, you've done a lot of diving and you're a very experienced diver. How did that come about?
0: The diving came about when I was at university and on the union board, i mention of a summer scholarship with Coral Key Conservation. I was wondering what to do with my summer holiday alongside working. And there was this offer to do six weeks in the Philippines on an uninhabited island called Dan Danhugan. And they said you didn't need diving experience. I had practiced dive. This really was, again, a leap of faith and ended up finding myself out on a plane and a 24 hour bus ride with chickens to this remote island I think that really and when we got there they trained us up we were with these Oxbridge uh, marine biologists and we did the paddy basic and the paddy advanced which is the diving qualifications that recognize around the world so that you can dive when you get to resort and we had to learn about the coral the reef and the algae and we learned a huge amount about the ecology out there basically we were there to map the island, it was under David Bellamy, another really inspiring man, and we then would send the results back to London, who mapped them on a computer, who presented them to the Philippine government because the local fishermen were dynamiting the reef, killing the coral, and we were seeing these great grave lands of, of dead coral and no fish, and the local communities were, were dying and starving. And every Saturday night, we would go and get a boat, a little skiff, over to the village and a little mud hut and do an old karaoke machine with the local villagers and we could see they were struggling they were really talking about how god is not being kind to them and the the fish are dying and they're really worried so actually the work there was vital it was to to be presented to the government to change the attitude to dynamite fishing and to preserve their reefs
1: so tell us about the diving you now have a the top level of paddy is that right
0: Yes, so another summer at university, I worked for a, a tour operator based out of Corsica, um working on the waterfront, ended up being a speedboat driver, teaching water skiing. And whilst there, I managed to get lots of dives with a dive instructor. And through that, I became a paddy rescue diver. It's always really important for me to know that I can look after others. And I will know what to do if something goes wrong. So for me to do that was, was really important. And since then, yes, I have dived a few places around the world. We lived and worked in Singapore and dived in Malaysia, where there was, there was a huge whale came in on the night dive. And we were diving and this great whoosh came past us. And later we discovered there was a seven meter whale in the bay. So yeah, and then uh, Shark Alley in Australia, where my brother lives.
2: And you've also dived the Blue Hole in Belize.
0: Yes, that's right. My last summer holiday at university and I was working for six weeks in London. Took two weeks off, went with some mates and we went to Belize specifically to dive the blue hole. And for me, that was a real dream. It was a very special experience. And when you're there, you can actually do somersaults and you lose sense of where's up, where's down, where's the surface of the water. The colours are sensational.
1: What is the blue hole? Is it very deep?
0: Great blue hole is a a marine sinkhole off the coast of Belize. It it lies near the center of Lighthouse Reef and it's it's a huge
2: cavern. And you've never felt claustrophobia, obviously. I have.
0: And actually whilst out there we did a day trip cave diving. I still have nightmares about that. It was terrifying. There was a rope put through the caves, but essentially you can't come up for air if you panic. You have to really controlled. And you saw great stalagmites and stalactites. Stalactites are the ones that come down, like tights on your legs uh, from the caves. But that that I found terrifying. So yes, I always get scared. I was very scared skiing Mont Blanc. But it's about overcoming those fears and having a can-do attitude.
1: Yeah, I once went potholing in the Peak District. I have to say never again. I thought that was a truly terrifying experience because you've got to dive down and go through a little tunnel, which if you could see where you were going, was absolutely nothing. You can't see anything and you've got to push on through because if you don't push on through, you you, you can't breathe. You've got to wait to get through the other side. It was not an experience I enjoyed overall. I, I think I'm, a, I'm too claustrophobic for that.
0: So I think all these things are kind of, you, you gradually do something and you're terrified and then you do a little bit more. Maybe I quite like that feeling.
1: Louise, what's the driving force behind this action girl bit?
0: The action really is quite periphery. I'm driven by people's stories. I'm driven to find out more about the people behind the places, the culture
2: behind the places.
1: And then you've done something much calmer, hot air ballooning in the Atlas Mountains.
2: Have you tried that, Peter, Felice? I have, yeah, yeah. Not in the Atlas Mountains. I've done it in the, over the Mara and quite a few different places, but not Morocco.
0: That must be very special. And actually, that was the joy of it, was to get a different perspective again from the air and be above the above the desert and see the Atlas Mountains. And you go at sunrise. So uh, you saw the whole land come alive with the Berbers and the goat and the cockles baying and the light, the light quality of seeing the red fortress city starting to glow red in the sunrise. It's a great thing to do with kids. That was pretty special. You also escaped the heat of the
2: day. Fast forward 20 or 30 years... What would you like to be remembered for? I suppose the motto I've always had in my mind is, is
0: the old school motto, Arda Sad Solam, strive towards the sun. But really, it would be wanting to give something back. And for me, a lot of my experiences come through my journalism. And it's actually not about my experiences. It's telling other people's. And I would love to set up an education fund and give something back through Africa and charities, but that's a long way down the line.
1: What's your ideal day? How would you spend it? Anywhere in the world, one ideal day?
0: With my family, a book in the beach. (laughs) Or in front of the fire in the mountains.
2: And if you could choose anywhere to live, where would that be? Solcom. I would say Sulcum.
0: It's my favorite place in the world. Coastal, kind of Riviera town in Devon, West England. We grew up there and that's where I'd like my ashes scattered.
2: <laughs> What's the one thing you wished you'd done sooner in your life? Probably sailing. I'd have
0: liked to learn my sailing qualifications so that I could feel safe on a boat. I feel a bit terrified on a boat out at sea. One thing I hold on to, my holy grail, is a quote from the Dalai Lama. Once a year, go someplace you've never been before. The world is a pretty magic place, and to get out there and, and explore it while we can.
1: Louise, it's been great chatting to you on the show today and we're really looking forward to you hosting a lot more episodes of Action Packed Travel around the world.
2: That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our website, ActionPackTravel.com, or you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon or any of the many podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peter at actionpacktravel.com. Until next week, stay safe. And I am you, and you are me. It's just it's a crazy storm.